We're looking at the series about the kings and the prophets of Israel. And this morning we're especially looking at King Rehoboam. But you might have seen this poster about. It's in the newsletter and it's on the outside notice board and the inside notice board. And this is the thing about the kings. Often the kings in the Bible had prophets that were speaking to them because they were kind of a bit deaf, a bit mutton jeff from what God was saying. So they needed someone to come along and say, this is what God's saying. Listen, then do something about it. So what we know is that often when there's a king, there's always going to be some sort of prophet around as well. And we'll talk much more about that as we go along. We're going to get two bits of information, two bits of useful bits of paper. One you've probably had already, and that's the reading plan. We've done these before. So if you want to sort of read over the next 47 days about the kings and the prophets and see where they fit in with each other, that would be the bit of paper that you can use there. The other bit of paper is a background plan. And I've given it to someone to look at once over whose uh, ideas I really uh, think are, are great. And this person has sort of said, yeah, this is pretty all right, this is good. So that's why I'm letting you have a look at it as well. Now, this isn't the finished product, that's why there aren't any in the back, because it's not in colour and it's kind of not centred properly. But when you get one of these, you'll be able to see where the kings and the prophets fit in. Because it might be you read the prophets and you just think, that was really God, really good God, thank you for speaking to me today through that prophet. But of course, that's why it wasn't. It wasn't written for that purpose, especially for you to be challenged or blessed in the 21st century AD. It was written and said hundreds of years BC for a special time, kings and international relationships that they needed to know. So by using this, you'll be able to see which prophets fit in with which kings, and then you can think about where the kings fit in with the Bible, because all the Bible references are there as well. So you're not just going to think, oh, Jeremiah, which king's he talking to? Or Obadiah, or Habakkuk, where are all these fitting in? By using this from next week, or downloading it from the internet, you can have a look at that and know it's okay. So I'll get rid of those bits of paper. Now, you look like an intellectual lot. It's great. I love it when you smile at me, because... I've got some questions for you, all right? The questions are, I've got some monarchs, and I want you to tell me who they are, all right? Because we're looking at kings and queens of Israel, so what we're doing is going to see, do we, need, do we know these people? Who's this? Queen Victoria, when did she reign? That's good enough for me, thank you very much. 1837 to 1901. Who's the next person? Napoleon. Napoleon, it was. Anyone know when he reigned? 1804 to 1814, and then he had a bit of a 1815 jobby after that. Okay, next one. Now, I've put this on especially for Eleanor's mum. Alright? So he's a king of Italy. Now, if you've been to Italy, you've probably seen some statues about him. And there's this wonderful big statue in Rome, massive and white, like a wedding cake. And it's for this chap. 
Put your, yeah, Paul knows because he knows all the answers today. Well done, Paul. So his name is King Victor Emmanuel II of Italy, and he reigned those days. Okay, now this is a good one. I think a few of you good people will know who this is. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but a lot of you will know. Who's that then? Nope, wrong country. If I put his name, will you know him then? So he was the last emperor of Korea. And I'm glad all the Koreans knew. That's really good. <laughs> Let's move swiftly on. Okay, who's this? Henry the Seventh, and when did he reign? 14, Battle of Bosworth Fields. 1485 to 15. And what was that rule? King Henry Will. Yeah. He, King Henry Will, definitely, isn't it? So that's King Henry Will VII. I think William was one of his middle names, I think. So you're quite right. That is brilliant. Rua knows a lot about history. I'm going to go and see him later. Right, so they're all the different kings. Now, that's all right, having a bit of background about kings, but we're especially thinking about the kings of Israel and Judah. And Dassol is going to come and read something for us. She's going to read from 1 Kings, chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. So if you want to turn to that, you can do. It's not going to be on the screen, but you're welcome to turn to it if you want to. So it's 1 Kings 12, 1-17. Sorry. Um, Rehob- Re- Rehoboam went to Shechem, to, uh, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he, f- he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, uh, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and put the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam uh, consulted the elders who had, served his, who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you an- advise me to answer these people? he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scrouged you with whips. I will scrouge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king and said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young man and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. 
My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this return, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in Sun? What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. Um, but as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. Lovely. Thanks, Dasson. Thank you. So that is perhaps one of the main incidents that we know about in Roboam's life and his reign. But of course, we might know that there were three main kings that happened before Roboam. There was another one as well, but that was kind of a short reign. So we've probably heard of Saul, David and Solomon. And Saul was the person who was the first king. Can you remember how he became king? Yeah, he was tall and good looking. And like, and Samuel sort of heard from God because all the Israelites wanted to be, well, say all the Israelites, a lot of the Israelites wanted to be like the other nations around them. And so they said, they've got a king, let's have a king. And Samuel and God weren't happy with it, but they kind of went with that decision. And so Saul uh, was anointed by Samuel, and that we read about that in 1 Samuel 9. And we sort of read later on how the Philistines were putting a lot of pressure on the Israelite territory. They were invading and trying to take territory away. So they thought instead of being like a confederate of nations, if they'd become one nation under Saul, that would be a lot easier and they'd be able to repel the enemy a lot more. David, now you might know he wrote lots of psalms and things like that, and he kind of extended this territory. So instead of just a sort of the size it was, it grew a little bit. And Solomon, he made a lot of building things happen. So he consolidated what David had done and he did lots of building like in Jerusalem, the big, big massive temple and Megiddo and uh, Hazor as well. So he did lots of uh, building works. And between them, these three kings, Saul, David and Solomon, they reigned about 120 years also, give or take a few weeks. And that's quite a long time, isn't it, for three kings? But the country wasn't unified, really. That's why he's inverted commas there. And David's family itself wasn't unified either. It was just everyone wanting their own thing, really. We read about King Rehoboam then from 1 Kings 12 and 14 and 2 Chronicles 10, 11 and 12. And when you're at home, you can look them up if you like. And that's a really good thing over the next few weeks... If you notice on the back, it says, of this sheet, it says who's speaking when, but more importantly, who the king will be. So if you want to do a bit of background reading of who the king is and where the verses are and the chapters, you can be thinking about it before whoever speaks, speaks. And that's a good thing to be ready and uh, listening and, and so on. So Rehoboam was about 41, we think, when he became king, and he reigned for about 17 years. The problem was, his mother was named 
Neymar. Well, what I say the problem was, there were lots of problems. And we're going to sort of be thinking about that. But his mother was Neymar, and she wasn't an Israelite. So if we have a look at 1 Kings 11, 1 to 6, and you don't have to turn to all of these, you can just look at them at home, because they're all there on the website. And this is talking about King Solomon, because obviously uh, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. So it says in 1 Kings 11, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not interact with any of them and intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. It's a pretty bad start in life, isn't it? If your father's kind of not so good and your father and your mother is sort of showing you to do wrong things, worship other gods, not the true God, but to worship other gods. I wonder what his youthful and childhood was like when Rehoboam was growing up. Was he encouraged to go to these shrines? I wonder what his life was like, because like, his, his father Solomon was having all this building work done. So you can imagine how Rehoboam maybe was grown up in a palace, along with all his other half-brothers and half-sisters. Maybe he had no idea what the average Israelite was going through. A few verses from 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 9. And again, you don't need to turn to this at all. But this is uh, 13 to 28, and it's just talking about the splendour of Solomon, how he had loads of gold and loads of silver, and and silver wasn't good enough. It was just like, yeah, so what? Let's use something better to make uh, our dishes. So if you read, when you're at home sometime, 2 Chronicles 9, verses 13 and following, you'll see that Rehoboam's life, how he started with all this material wealth, made a big impact on him, I'm sure. And Rehoboam himself, he had 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons, and 60 daughters. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles 11:21. Perhaps he was an arrogant man. I think from what Dassault read, we can probably see that. Already under Solomon's reign, near the end of his reign, the northern tribes were not so happy about being with the southern tribes anyway. So I think they were probably just looking for some excuse to turn away from what, uh, what God was saying and what they wanted. They wanted to go their own way. I, remember, I sort of remember at the start of Solomon's reign how he had a wonderful incident which showed that God was with him and that we knew that he was a wise man. Do you remember the story of the two ladies and the two babies? So there's two ladies that come with him, come to him, And they both said, because there was one child that was dead and one child that was alive. And they both said, the child that is alive is my baby. The child that is dead is her baby, the other one. They both said it. Now, how would you determine who was who? 
I think if it was me, I'd say, well, let's share the baby. You can have the baby for six months or a year, and then for the next six months or a year, you can have it. And we'll just sort of go from one to the other. That's going to be fair. But he was really wise, wasn't he? And he was sort of saying, so let's kill the child. So then both of you have got dead babies. And, of course, then we really did know who the real mother was. Because the real mother said, let her have the child. It's much better that my child is alive rather than dead. So that was really God's wisdom to Solomon. But from what Dassault read, how wise was Rehoboam? Well, it's interesting. It depends on what take you, you think about. But if you're sort of going to listen to the elders or the youngers and you sort of antagonise the great people... Perhaps it was an, an unwise thing. Although, of course, later, a few verses later, it says it was God's plan and all of this sort of thing. So maybe it was a wise thing. We can have a discussion about that later if you want to. But on the face of it, we can say that sort of antagonising the whole host of the uh, northern tribes was a bad thing because it divided the kingdom. And in his reign, it wasn't just those bad things then, but later on as well. 1 Kings 14, I've just got three verses I want to read out of there. 1 Kings 14, 22 to 24. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill, and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So sin in Rehoboam's life carried on. All the gold that Solomon had amassed in Jerusalem and perhaps in other places began to be tarnished. And the king of Egypt, he came and invaded and took a lot of it. But really, when there's sin, there's often sort of things that go wrong. Morally, things go bad, don't they? Where sin happens, where we're morally poor. There's two summaries of Rehoboam's reign I want to read out. Because he was a bad king, really. Both from 2 Chronicles chapter 12. After Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. So he became strong, I don't need God anymore, I'm going to go my own way. And then later in the chapter, verse 14, same chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 12, he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And if you read those chapters that we've got there, there's some other incidents as well that you'll just read about and think, well, how come God allowed him to be king? And it was for a reason. But how can we apply these things to our lives as well? Because that's perhaps one of the main things that we want to think about. You can go home and read the stories a bit more and think, yeah, he was an evil king. He was a king that didn't really follow God with all his heart, but did bad things, evil things. But what difference is that going to make in my life today and tomorrow? I've got three things. First of all, 
we need to pray for those in authority. Rehoboam was in authority. And we would say that he made bad choices, wrong choices. There's plenty of people in authority over us that maybe we could be praying for. I'm going to read some of their names. And maybe they're not directly in authority over us, but they're in authority over millions of other people, or will be quite soon. Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin. Angela Merkel. Theresa May. Marcus Jones. Justin Welby. Chris Cartwright. Paul Wood. Francois Hollande. Huang Khan. Does that sound about right? Thank you very much. That is, so, I know this because he's the Prime Minister of South Korea and the acting president at the moment because things have gone on with the proper president and so he's uh, the acting president at the moment as well. So, have I prayed for any of those recently? Have you prayed for any of those people in authority recently? There's a list on our website of 18 people, at least 18 people with photos, that we could look at. And there's a little bit of a blurb about all of them. Maybe that might encourage you to pray. Or it might encourage you to think about praying for other people. Maybe if you see the MP walking down the street, or your councillor, or someone in authority, you could go up and say, hello, how you doing? That'd be okay. I sometimes see Marcus Jones around town and sort of say, hello Marcus. He doesn't say hello John, but he does say hello back. And he recognises me now, because I've said it a few times. And, and uh, yeah, but I won't tell you how many other incidents I've had with him. But there's been a few. But it's good to talk to people in authority, because they're human, and they need our prayers. Pray for those in authority. Be more sensitive to others. Think about, again, what Dassault read. How sensitive was Rehoboam to the Israelites? Not at all. So his father Solomon had put lots of taxes on them because he wanted all these building works and maybe forced some of them to be labour workers and working and maybe a lot of foreign people did that as well. But I think some of the Israelites were forced to work and build these massive things. He didn't help. He made it worse. Could we, as Christians, try and imagine walking in other people's shoes, I wonder? There's some sort of saying about walking in someone's shoes for a mile, I can't remember what it is, but you know the one I mean, where we'd appreciate really what it's like if we try and walk in their shoes, if we, then we'd know how their feelings are and, and what they're facing rather than what we think they're facing. How can we make someone's life brighter and happier? How can I lessen their metaphorical load off their shoulders? Be more sensitive to God. Sometimes when you see car, uh, cartoons, you see a character, and on his shoulders, there's two talking characters as well. <laughs> but if you do this, that'll be okay. <laughs> you know the thing I mean? Oh, but if you do this, everything's all right. I wonder if we've got sort of ideas in our minds sometimes. The bad voice, blah, 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 The good voice, do it like this, everything's okay. Is that what it's like in your life? It is definitely in mine sometimes. I hear two voices and I think, oh yeah, 
yeah, I could do it this way, I could do it that way. There's something really good that the Bible says. Really good. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, believers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable and worthy of respect, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings peace, whatever is admirable and of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think continually on these things. Centre your mind on them and implant them in your heart. Isn't that brilliant? We all get these voices on our shoulders, but if we're endeavouring to say, Lord, I'm going to focus my attention on you, I'm going to read your word, I'm going to meet with other Christians to pray, surely the two voices on our shoulders get easier. We're hearing God speak to us. We're getting ingrained in God's word. We're getting sort of to know God more. And that's got to be a good thing. So if we're focusing and being more sensitive to God, we'll hear him speak to us, surely. So if God is speaking to us, what is he saying to me? And what is he saying to you individually? And what is he saying to us collectively? Now in my life, God often uses objects to help me to understand what he's saying to me. So, the last few weeks, I want to show you what God has been saying to me, but I need your help to understand what it is. Okay, this is what God has been showing me. It's a chair. Give me an adjective. Or two or three or four. Empty chair. There's 52 empty chairs over there. Isn't that terrible? There's these empty chairs around us. That's awful, isn't it? The space for people to get saved and to know Jesus as their saviour here. So I've taken this photo in the church. Where did I take the photo? Where is it? It's here. This is where I took the photo. Just here. A few weeks before Christmas, I was talking to someone here, and this person was here, and suddenly he did that, and he said to me, is that a secret room? Don't laugh, it's terrible, because this person had been coming to this church for years, regularly, and he didn't know about what's here. We cover it up. We don't know about it. It's hidden. But that's what it looks like. I took this off a few days ago and took a photo. Because we never see it. For years. We've got an empty and hidden chair. Because they're right at the back. We don't look at them. 
we've got an empty and hidden baptistry. It's right here. This is the most glorious part of the church. This is really symbolic of new life. And yet we cover it up. We don't use it. Because people aren't getting saved. And I want to apologise. Because my part in it isn't happening. I haven't been going out. I haven't been praying enough. I haven't been deciding, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give my whole life to being a missionary to you. Sometimes I'd rather watch television or have a glass of wine. But maybe God's calling us to be serious. We don't want this secret room to be secret anymore. This is a beautiful part of the church. And yet, we don't see it. Because the carpet matches. There's a bit of thing to make sure the carpet's alright. But where I am is brilliant. And don't we want to see it being used? Don't we want to see people getting saved? But how much are we going to count the cost for that? How much are we going to say, Lord, let someone else do it. Let Paul get on with it. Let John get on with it. And anyone else who's got an evangelistic gift. What's our response then to all these empty chairs? Do sell them. We only use them once or twice a year. That'll make the church look a whole heap better, won't it? We don't want sort of pokey chairs at the back getting in the way. Not at all, do we? We can't do that. We can't ignore the empty chairs. Those around us and those at the back. We can't do nothing. We've got to do something. But I'm reminded of this from Zechariah 4, verse 6. And again, you can read when Zechariah spoke and to which king and what he was really saying at that time. But maybe God's saying it to us as well. Today, tomorrow and the next day. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You will not succeed by your own strength or by your own power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, all-powerful. And that's the New Century Version. So we can have good ideas. We can say, yes, we're going to do this. Let's go out tomorrow. Let's do this. But what is God saying about the empty chairs? What does he want us to do? What we've got to do then? It's all easy stuff when it's written down. But it is going to cost us. We have to pray and listen to God. We have to fast. We have to open ourselves to God. We have to talk to others. We have to continue to pray and fast, both corporately and individually. In a few weeks' time, we'll be reading from 2 Chronicles 20 with King Jehoshaphat. But when he was alive, there was an attack from the Moabites and the Ammonites. And what did he do? He called the Judeans together, the, the people of Judah together, and said, let's pray together. Let's fast together. And he said some amazing words. This is the summary. We do not know what to do, 
This is Jehoshaphat, the king, speaking. But our eyes are on you. He can imagine the king is meant to know it all. He's the king. He's above everyone else. But he's belittling himself and saying, I have no idea. This is a terrible situation, a serious situation. We have to look to God. There's no choice about it. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You might remember in Acts chapter 12, James uh, had been killed by Herod Antipas. That's Herod the Great's son. Remember Herod the Great from the Nativity and all of that. So this was his son who'd, king, who'd killed James and he put Peter in prison. What did the church do? They didn't just sort of say, oh well, that's that then. Anyone else want to be leader? Anyone else want to have a go at doing it? No, no, they did this. They, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 12 of Acts, the church was earnestly praying. In some other versions it says they prayed with fervency and persistence. And in the message it says most strenuously. Jesus talked about fasting in Matthew 6. And he didn't say at the very beginning, if you fast, do this. His first word wasn't if. His first word was when. When you fast, do this, this and this. Maybe God's calling us to pray, to do, to fast, to rely on him, definitely. Because that's the only way. But maybe God's calling us to just stand up or to kneel down and say, Lord, without you, we can't do this. We can't make this year a different year. I don't really want this year to be the same as last year and the year before and the year before that. I'd love people to be saved here. But I know there's a cost to it. And there's a cost to us if God's going to move around us in this estate and in this church, in our lives. Come and learn how to pray here. This was outside for a few weeks. And for me, I want to learn how to pray. For me, that's what I want to learn the most this year, to learn how to pray and to learn what's going on, to seek God. I don't want to grumble when people start coming in and they make noises in the service. I don't want to grumble if they're asking appropriate questions in inappropriate times. Because people coming in want to know about life. We perhaps know loads and loads. We all do, don't we? But people coming in aren't used to this sort of scenario, sitting down and listening and, and singing to an invisible God. There's education, discipleship, all these things. I wonder if NCF is going to be the same in five years' time, as it is today. If it is, I don't think we've been obeying God. If it is, I think we've been more interested in ourselves. There's thousands of people in town. God's going to lead us if we listen to him. God's going to help us to say the right words at the right time. But we've just got to stand up or kneel down and say, Lord, I'm not willing to be the same. I'm not willing to keep my Christian life as it is. I'm willing to choose to follow you. 
I wonder if you can look around in your mind's eye, in your imagination. Can you see maybe 90 or 100 people here every Sunday morning? That would be great. But it's not the end, because how many thousands of people are in town? And we want the Lord to increase not just the church here, but the church across town, don't we? But we do want the Lord to increase us numerically and in depth. We do want non-Christians coming here, getting saved regularly. We do want them being baptised. Here, we want to take the carpet up. We want to see what's here. So that when someone comes along and just taps their foot, they don't say, is that a secret room? They know exactly what it is. Because they've used, seen it used several times every year. We've got serious times, I think, in the next few months and years. And we can say to God, yes, I want to follow you. A lot of the time. But I also want to be interested in myself and my family. Or we can say, God, I give you everything. Will you lead me and help me this year? I choose to focus my eyes on you, just like Jehoshaphat did. I choose to train my ears to listen to you. I choose that my heart is going to follow you, just like the deer panting for the water in that psalm. So my heart, I choose today, not just as a New Year resolution, because they don't really work so well, do they? But this is a God thing we can do between ourselves and God and say, Lord, I choose with all my heart to follow you. I choose to say, here I am, Lord. So we're going to pray. And then we're going to worship, we're going to take communion later, there's going to be time for testimonies maybe. But we don't want to forget that God wants us to be praying for those in authority, to be sensitive to others, to sensitive to God. And we don't want to forget the empty chair. Already on our website, I've put a picture of the empty chair on our prayer page. So if you ever go on that, that's the first thing, well, one of the first things you'll see, an empty chair. And you can just say, Lord, help me know what to do, how to respond to the empty chair. So we're going to pray now, and then the Lord's, I'm sure, going to speak to us over the coming days and weeks as we all respond to the empty chair. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that we're new creations and alive in you. And we're sorry, Lord, that perhaps we haven't been the church individually that we could be as people. But Lord, as remember, sort of uh, Joshua, sort of saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Lord, for myself, Lord, I say today, I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Lord, we know there'll be good times, hard times in this coming year. But Lord, I choose to follow you. With my heart, I will follow. Lord, will you give me more desire? And Lord, fill us again. Lord, thank you for your love in us. Help us to share that love with other people. Amen.